Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. At the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember this story. story, story, story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome along to episode 17 Surely of the Podlocks, not. A number that we've all been tripping over in our brains this morning. Episode 17. So, we are back, we are recording, we are ready to hear some new adventures, some new exciting stories. And I think when we last arrived, we would maybe just come into... Um, Leamington Spa, which is where Tommy and I sort of know about the world beginning. Um, so, Stevie, take us away. Yeah, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Um, I'm now 26 mm-hmm. in this little saga of life. Uh, as those of you who've been following intimately will know, I've been to Aberdeen, Zambia, Philippines and Sudan. And as Jay just recently said, we are now find ourselves in Leamington Spa Settling into an old new house, sorry, a new old house. It's a very old house, but it was <laughs> new to us, um, which needs lots of DIY. And um, I had got a new job. And this new job is supporting projects, uh, particularly um, in Africa, where uh, working with refugees who are coming into Sudan from Eritrea, there were tens of thousands of people coming in every week. And this organisation was set up to um, to help them. So my job was to back up some of those projects. And you are not yet born, you two, as you quite rightly said, but very soon yeah. you will be. And I thought uh, this just is one of the last sort of episodes, really, where it's setting the scene for a period where I was zipping off here, there and everywhere. And we can begin to sort of exchange your memories of those times with my memories of those times mm. and trying to see whether there's any truth in any of it, which might, might not be <laughs> What even is truth when we talk about memory? Oh, how long Ooh. have you got? <laughs> <laughs> not enough time, that's for sure. Do you, have you, did you ever see that thing where they did a, a sort of research uh, and um, people using a telephone box, if you can remember, and imagine that in those days where people used to use telephone boxes, um, and anyone who's in the telephone box, they uh, got a chat with sort of wild orange hair and a bobble hat and a stripy jumper and green trousers to open the door while they're on the phone and say, quick, quick, have you seen somebody with a, a gun running by or something? And then they interviewed each of these people who were just ordinary members of the public using the phone and asked them to describe the person who had interrupted their phone call. And they were like kind of n- nothing similar between all the, all the different, oh. um, different testimonies. And, and some of them would say, well, no, definitely long blonde hair, definitely, or <laughs> short curly hair. You know, just anyway, there is no truth. Yeah, yeah there yeah. is no truth when it comes to memory. No but thing. We're excited to delve into the pot. <laughs> so, <Of> lies. <laughs> so just sort of a sort of standard kind of life for us in those days, Mutz and me, um, was that we were recruiting people to go out and work in these projects. I mean, my, my job was really mostly back in, in Leamington. Uh, but we had a whole string of fresh-faced young people um, coming up, hopefuls, to join the team. And because the projects were medical largely, it was um, tended to be doctors, um, nurses, and then support teams. So um, we always have to have 
transport so we actually sent mechanics out to to maintain the vehicles out there because it was the facilities were fairly sort of limited really and uh, we had admin staff backup staff all sorts of people and they would come to to Leamington for interview and part of the organizational sort of approach was that they would stay overnight um, as part of the interview really to see see what they were really like as opposed to um, (laughs) that hour in the interview or something Um, so we would monitor whether they offered to help with the washing up and all that sort of thing, whether whether they were polite in the mornings, um, you know. And so those people tended, or some of them, used to come and stay with us. And we had a very interesting stream of different kinds of people coming through, uh, having breakfast with us and uh, and then being interviewed properly and eventually, mostly, um, being sent out to work in these projects. And for the most part... They were people who hadn't worked overseas before. And of course, that, that had been the case with me. And this this organisation, Christian Outreach, as we call it, um, <laughs> or now called CORD, um, it sort of took risks with people, really, and said, you know, this person may not have that experience, but we think they can do a good job. You absolutely need things like that. Um, I think that sort of attitude is so important when people go... You don't necessarily have all the experience, but mm. but we're just going to give you a chance, give you an opportunity. Well, the stupid thing is you've got to get to experience somewhere to begin with. Well, so, exactly. Um, <laughs> but, it, I mean, it is a controversial thing, especially in the area of overseas um, work where, uh, and this is an, a, sort of a genuine thing, you, you could be seen to be sending useless inexperienced people to countries where it didn't really matter or people think it didn't mm. really matter but of course we we took the opposite approach we said well here's a real resource that somebody who who's motivated um you know got, got common sense got the skills and qualifications and we had a list of criteria who seems flexible enough to be able to survive um let's try them out and in fact what's great is that quite a lot of those people now today are still sort of in that area and many of them are leaders in their field um in mm. in another organization so one of our our staff who went as a new nutritionist is is the lead nutritionist for a major international organization the name of which everyone would know so we feel as if you know in those days you were taking risk but it was a sort of calculated risk that must feel quite exciting to sort of look around and go oh yeah they're all the people that we sort of started off Completely. And I mean, one of the administrators, for example, is now in Kiev in Ukraine, um, running the Red Cross or backing up the Red Cross program there. So, you know, wow. right up to date current person who was sent out for the first time by by Cord. Um, and of course, the whole lot needed somebody to organise the operation, um, handle the report writing, that sort of thing. So we were always looking for sort of general people as well who were willing to go. Um, and there's a couple who we recruited in those very early days who you will remember. And this couple had been uh, trained as academic chemists. Um, both of them were PhDs, so they were doctors. And they'd gone to work um, in as a teaching uh, post, both of them, as professors in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. So they were um, working as just academics, you know, I say just, you know, as a normal job. And they went on a, a sort of a, a weekend break from uh, the capital of Ethiopia and they were kidnapped um, <gasps> by a rebel force and taken, I, I don't remember exactly, it might have been three or four days over some hills, trekking on ponies, not knowing at all the outcome, whether it would be good or bad. Um, 
but they they were released and um it was a bit of a news story and they um came back to the UK and in fact they then went and got a job uh, in Geneva as, as professors of chemistry there at the university but when they got that job they were sort of they'd been so impacted by their experience on the trail um having been kidnapped and seen exactly what the situation was um that they wanted to do something different and something a bit more useful and so they applied to cord have you guessed who they are yet <laughs> i was trying i'm trying to work it out no. and i thought i had an idea but now i'm not i'm not sure Anyway, these two um, came, they came for an interview and it happened to be at Christmas. And as uh, as we, as a family, go to Christine's, my sister's for Christmas every year, and it's a tradition, we used to go to my family home in Godalming for, for Christmas. And that's where we were. So they came for their initial interview, if you can believe it, to the Clark family home in Godalming <laughs> as part of the Chris, Christmas preparations. Now, when I think back of, to this... Um, I sort of squirm because knowing the, <laughs> when we got to know them and the kind of people they are and my family background and the sort of stuff that went on. So I have this picture in my head of my Aunt Edith, who uh, you never met, but she was, um, uh, she was a, a single woman all her life. She was the first female tax inspector uh, in the UK. So quite Whoa. a formidable woman. And, uh, but, you know, she seemed terrifying to begin with but if you scratch the surface she was just a lovely heart of gold sort of person and she was always very interested in family so she was there at this Christmas do and I have this picture of this this couple peeling potatoes with my aunt Edith in the living room <laughs> of my family home which is such a juxtaposition of oddities uh, and then the, to, to pile it all on they had to catch a train from Reading which is quite a trek from Godalming um to go to to north to mid wales for their christmas um family do and so anyway it was for me to take them to the station and of course i don't know things got out of hand we left it a bit late we missed oh, the no. train we no. missed the train do everything 10 minutes earlier Steve. i didn't know that it's in the, those the days cardinal rule. <laughs> so i i just i can i mean this is 1985 so that's a very long time ago and i can remember as if it was yesterday drawing up at the station thinking they're not going to make it because it was like two minutes to go and they needed tickets and oh. and anyway they they got the tickets but they didn't get and i could only all i could do was leave them there and run because it was christmas and i don't you know they had to sort themselves out but of course this was a very good training course for going to Sudan, <laughs> where nothing is quite the way you expect it. And you have to, um, and the long and the short of it was we, we took them on and they, I mean, they were testing us as much as us testing them, really. And they decided to jump in with this. And it was Rob and Eva, if you remember them. Whoa. Yes. Now, those are two names I haven't heard yeah. in a long time. So you might just huh. remember their children, Chris and Hannah, uh, who were sort of similar age to you, I think, a bit older maybe. Um, that is such an old memory. It's so faded, but I know the names from you saying them, but yeah. I can't really... Yeah, it's totally. It's so linked with Leamington, and I think because Leamington is so gone in my brain that it's, yeah, it's very faded. But it's I, it's so yeah. funny because it sort of telescopes in my mind, but I mean, you, you would have we would have known the children as a slight age difference but um yeah. and knocked around a bit with them but mm. you won't remember because of the time now that but Rob and Eva are extremely well organized absolute planners meticulous in their preparations so that whole mm. scenario of missing the train peeling potatoes mm. you know that everything was kind of like <laughs> a, a cultural a cultural mm. challenge 
And it's it's a total credit to them. And I really mean this, that they then went and spent a couple of years um, sort of... And you remember Alan Fordry, the doctor who used treasury tags, I recounted in a mm. previous, in Sudan. I mean, he was the most disorganised person ever. <laughs> and and they, they took over from him. So that was another kind of <laughs> wow. cl- clash of contrast, you know. And, and when I think back to it now, I just think they were hugely big people to go and take that on um, and then work with me for two years who, who's another kind of younger <laughs> Alan Fordry really with my treasury tags <laughs> on, e- equivalent um, young Alan Fordry the, yeah. the nice way of saying <laughs> disorganized <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I mean you know and and we, we it wasn't easy working together because we were very different kinds of people but all of us knew that the outcome was 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 actually life saving and and looking after and trying to prepare the way for these these refugees to to settle, and and the refugees were in in three big camps, twenty five thousand in each in each camp, so it was a huge responsibility. I mean, we were working in one of the camps, uh, doing the mother and child health clinics and a community program and and so on, and 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 Rob and Eva would be travelling up that long journey I've mentioned in a previous podcast that takes about twelve hours, I think in stifling heat um, in British Land Rovers that had no air conditioning uh, just to go and sort of make sure the team had got what they needed and uh, everything was working well so so that was kind of part of our life in Leamington was was enjoying the company and getting to know these people who who we then went and visited from time to time as head office kind of delegates if you see what I mean going to see what was happening on the ground Um, and now I know a bit more, I realise that coming from head office out to the field, you know, you're viewed with suspicion at best, really, because <laughs> you, you, <laughs> sort of, you sort of represent um, the organisation and anybody who's ever knows, has worked for an organisation will know um, that there are flaws in every group um, and they sort of get accentuated, I think, or seem accentuated when you're out on, on the field. <laughs> And one of those trips, uh, uh, Mutz came with me. Uh, we went off to the Sudan and uh, I used to go and have meetings, important meetings here, there and everywhere. And far more importantly, Mutz used to meet with the team who are largely female and, you know, talk to them and see how they were getting on. Um, and just sit and listen to their stories, really, which is, is, is what they needed. And on one of those trips, we decided to stop. Um, a bit like you did recently, Jay, when you came back from us in here in France to the UK and you realised that if you stopped in Paris for three days it was a free stopover because you had mm. to do the two legs of the journey. Yeah. So we, we, we did that back um, uh, from Sudan to London via Cairo in Egypt and, uh, and decided to stop Ooh. in Egypt for a few days. Um, and this was quite, a, quite an experience because we were not well-travelled in those days. I don't know what it's like now, but it was a bit of a rough and tumble in those days. Uh, and it started when we arrived because we took a Sudan Airways flight to Cairo, which is just a couple of hours. And it was a late night flight, I remember, arriving about 11 o'clock at night in the evening. Uh, that's at the night and in the evening at the same time. <laughs> just to be clear. Just, just to be clear. <laughs> it was late. Not, not the light of the morning, but the night of the evening. No, but that's right. The point being that you're sort of... You're not necessarily thinking as sharply as you might do at nine in the morning. But anyway, Mm. um, two flights landed at the same time from Sudan. Uh, One was British Airways and one was Sudan Airways. And it 
it it showed me very early on how people are just treated differently depending on where they come from how they look who they are the way they speak um so this one flight mostly white caucasian people on british airways were just swept through the airport so they just disappeared in a long trail we never saw them again they went and got out and off to their hotels the sudan airways flight we were sort of herded through like i don't know what um and there was just no end of chaos trying to process our entry to the um to the country and i think we were the only if if we weren't the only white people on that flight we were certainly very one of very few couples if um, mm. I, I think we were probably the only um white couple and we got taken into a little room and uh, uh and they said there was a problem because they were checking yellow fever certificates now at the time yellow fever wasn't required if you came from britain but it was required if you came from sudan and because we'd been to sudan on a trip it they were sort of arguing um that uh, we should have a yellow fever certificate anyway this went on and on and on and we were very naive we were sort of didn't realize what was going on and this chap got more and more aggressive he had a couple of pips on his shoulder you know sort of like a mm. second I don't know the, the ranks. Anyway, he said, I'm going to go and get my, my friend. He off he went and got this chap. And the chap came with three pips on his shoulder. And he was a little bit more kind of in your face. And he said, well, I'm going to get the chief immigration officer. He said, um, be very nice to him. Just be very nice to him. And uh, so we thought, well, we are being nice, aren't we? So anyway, this, <laughs> the chief immigration mm. officer came in. And um, eventually it dawned on us very, very slowly that that they were looking for some money to let us in because the the deal was Mm. because we weren't vaccinated we were going to be put in quarantine for 10 days well we were only there for six it was the whole the whole visit was less than a week um so they said we're going to put you in quarantine unless you're very nice to us (laughs) i was thinking i can't i was thinking i can't be i can't be any nicer Um, i've been the nicest of charlie financially nicer (laughs) Gosh, the three pips on your shoulder. How how impressive. How shiny you must have, you must they have must... worked so hard to <laughs> So That's anyway, I mean I mean I, I I tell this story because I, I'm now extremely aware that corruption is rife. Everywhere in the world, it doesn't matter which country you go to, if you're in position of power or authority, you will have things and ways of making life work for you at the expense of others. And um I think I might have mentioned this when I worked in Zambia uh, as a volunteer. There was a border crossing there where the border guards were never paid by the government. And so their only way of, of surviving and feeding their families was by charging the people crossing the border, which you could look on as a bribe or you could look on as a, a survival mechanism. Anyway, be that as it may, we paid our 50 bucks and then we got on a, on a coach and off to our hotel. And, you know, I didn't feel good about it. And I felt extremely idiotically stupid how long it had taken us for dawn you know, to realise what was going on. Um, but that was our, our sort of entrance to Egypt. And it sort of carried on because it was a, it's a very busy, bustly place. And um, if you're a, a sort of an un, inexperienced traveller, you, you kind of are a fair game, I think, for the, for the people who are selling things. Um, so at the pyramids, for example, I know Mutz was particularly harassed by people sort of tugging her and wanting to sell her stuff and um, slightly less so for me. But then uh, when we got to uh, back to um, the city again uh, and um, 
we were just walking in the centre of the city and this chap bumped into us and it was like, it was, it was so clever because it was, it really felt like a sort of an accidental bumping into somebody. And he was the most charming bloke you could imagine. And he, you know, he was, <laughs> he, he, he was just talking to us about where we were from, the weather, you know, what we've been doing. And, and it was almost like he was then going to go on his way. He said, oh, he said, um, my, um, my brother owns a, a perfume factory. Would you be interested in seeing it? It's just, it's just down the street here. And um, he said, oh, yeah, that sounds really interesting. You know, what, uh, <laughs> yeah. what are the chances of bumping into somebody like that? To seem, you know, so, um, anyway, we went down the street and into the perfume so-called factory, which was a, a, a shop, really. Um, yeah. and, and the minute the minute the door closed, we were we were imprisoned, really until we bought something is the truth of it but it was a scary experience because we we just didn't see it coming this this mm. guy had been so convincing and so charming um that we just presumed his brother had got a perfume factory and we were going to see how perfume was made mm. <laughs> mm. so i i remember i think we bought a little bottle of perfume and came out and that that trip probably taught me a lot about just being aware of what's going on around you all the time mm. when you're in it it doesn't matter what you know what country what city you know wherever you are near to your home if it's a place you're not familiar with just be aware of what's going on around you because uh it it, it isn't always the way it, way it seems mm. i don't know if either of you had any experiences like that where you were taken by surprise mm. i was trying to think because that's i i remember that story i'm sure you've told us that one before and i yeah. remember it sort of feeling a bit like because well, like when you're traveling and you're in a new place that you haven't been before and that's exactly the kind of connection you want to be making with local people of like oh look a, a, a secret in some local thing and you can really get to know what it's like here in a real way and then and then of course that expectation is, is how they entice you to come and buy something yeah which makes perfect sense um so I don't know I it's yeah I don't think I've ever had I don't feel like I've been to enough places as a grown-up on my own like whenever we've been anywhere like more exciting it's been with you as children I think we had something happen when we went to Bali which was kind of interesting in terms of you're trying to navigate how a country that you don't live in works and you know I think you're trying to be respectful as a person visiting but you're also trying to you know make sure that your safety is is safe (laughs) um protected and Mm. Uh, and the thing the thing that we found was um just to do with the taxis and and sort of use of taxis in bali and we sort of through kind of like research on the internet and um i think the guidebook that we had there was um a taxi app that was kind of similar to like uber or bolted it was called bluebird and you could just download it on your phone and my kind of phone uh like data worked over in Indonesia so that was great so it just meant when if we needed to get around um because we were we were traveling between lots of different places so we quite often were using taxis to get to get around places and you could just book it through the app and that was all great we were like perfect this is really useful because it kind of just takes away some of that slight worry about um you know how do you flag down a taxi and do you know if it's yeah. an official taxi and kind of how, you know how does that work and particularly getting out at the airport you know there's lots of people who know that you're a tourist because you've just come off a flight from mm. london um got big bags <laughs> exactly and so and in kind of it just so so initially i was like great it just takes that small element of knowing when you're in a brand new place whether whether this is a licensed taxi or not 
Um, and that was all fine. And then it became clear, I can't totally remember when or or how, whether it was through talking to people that we were staying with or, or taxi drivers, but that there was a real... Um, the local taxi drivers basically were, were really against this Bluebird app. And I think probably because it... Uh, does what a lot of the big kind of companies do which is means that the people who are actually working don't earn as much money yeah because it's kind of being run by a bigger organization and they aren't necessarily you know sending all the profits back down the ladder Mm. um and i and i should say that i don't i don't actually know I remember coming away sort of not knowing whether what the actual truth was, whether because lots mm. of people did use this Bluebird app, but then the lots of taxi drivers were very angry about it. And it, I, I don't know, it, it never felt totally clear what was right. But the one one moment we had was when we um, we were going to visit a beach and we had changed our hotel plans because that this was when the um, volcano was due to erupt and we oh, yeah. had a hotel that was in the kind of exclusion zone so we'd we'd had to move it and so we were in a place that we hadn't we didn't really know very well anyway I'd forgotten all about that volcano saga <laughs> yeah <laughs> I know and we we were going to visit this place and we got um the hotel had taxis that they ordered so that was great and we got one and we went down to the place it was nice had a great day there um and it was getting to the evening and we were coming back and we were trying to uh book a bluebird taxi on the app and, and none of them were coming in this particular area was like they were kind of banned and there were sort of signs everywhere saying it was absolutely banned and you couldn't go anywhere but but because we'd because we just hung around there for so long, there had been loads of other taxis, but they'd all gone, mm. and it was sort of starting to get late, and it was starting to get dark, and it was just one of those moments where you were like, oh, I'm suddenly really hit by the fact I'm in a country that I don't know, with mm. us with this kind of slight layer of politics about the way you use taxis that I don't uh. fully understand, and we're also not near our hotel and. Oh, it was it was not very fun, and we what we mm. basically did. Tune in just... next time for the episode to follow, friends. <laughs> <laughs> I know we started. We just started walking back because I could see on the map how far it was, and I think I mean it definitely was too far to walk. But we were sort of like, well, I guess that's that's kind of the only option, yeah. and just hope at some point we either get out of the zone where the bluebird taxis are banned, or or another taxi drives past us um and i think in the end we got we we walked as far as to where the bluebird taxis would come and pick Gosh. you up and then and then put one on the app but it was certainly a moment of like mm. this this doesn't How feel this great yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. i mean interesting as a sort of digital modern update of that kind of issue i heard a program about a financial journalist from the bbc a lady who was um, a woman who was uh, explaining an experience she'd had recently where she was scammed. And she said, you know, I am one of those people who is super aware of the need for online security. I actually report on it. I'm doubly suspicious of, you know, speculative emails and phone calls. And her bank had rung her. She'd rung the bank back. And the the scam had involved setting up, transferring some money from an account that was compromised into a new account that she had set up online, uh, on the phone. And the chap spent four hours in total on the phone with her. And he was extremely charming, totally persuasive. And she lost £6,000. And she said, I'm I'm telling you this, it's incredibly humiliating. But, you know, if I can be taken in. But the thing is, you want to trust somebody who's nice and charming. That's the thing. Mm. So it's a a minefield out there. 
so those are the context of our sort of life in Leamington, really. And I thought um, maybe we should finish up, given just marking the fact that Queen Elizabeth II recently died and she's been the Queen since I was ever born, I thought I might tell you a, just a very dull story about how I went to a garden party at Buckingham Palace <laughs> once. So, as long as it's the dullest story. Well, yeah, there is as long a, as it's really boring. I mean, actually, <laughs> actually, that's the story, really. I went to a garden party at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> but well, that's the, already um, pretty interesting. But, how did that happen? Uh, well, it, it, it featured, of course, uh, Helen Taylor-Thompson, who will appear later in these mm. podcasts, um, lady I worked with for 10 years later on in life, who... Uh, who was a bit like the Queen herself, really, and she was very well connected. And um, I, I don't know who gets invited to garden parties um, by the Queen and now the King, um, but I, I, it's it's people who've done good things largely, I think. Um, and so Helen was selected for her services to charity, I suppose, for which she was also given an MBE and an OBE, by the way. Um, and uh, she got to take two guests. So she rang me up and said, would I like to go? And I thought, well, of yeah, course yeah. I'd like to go. <laughs> um, and uh, so off we pitched to, to Buckingham Palace, uh, walked through the gates up that area where you see the cars drive in, up steps, cursory check of our of our identity. If you're on the list, you're on the list. And I was on the list. And then we swan. And, I mean, they're a bit of a funny thing, really, because there's a lot of space, a lot of gardens, shall we say, um, and there were tables sort of laid out here, there and everywhere with, with cake and, cakes and pots of tea and stuff. I mean, literally a sort of a tea party in the garden of Buckingham mm. Palace. And, and people just milling around who you didn't know who they were. Um, but you guessed they would probably be done good things for charity or something. Um, mm. and, and no sign of the Queen or anybody else. Just sort of you're all just there in Buckingham Palace. But there was a moment where uh, she and Prince Philip uh, then came out and 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 there are a few people who were lined up sort of pre-lined up to meet her um and who were briefed and uh, and they sort of formed a line and she went and shook their hands and spoke to them uh but and then she sort of grinned at the rest of us as she walked past so uh i mean my own my only thing i take away from that was that i thought she was very small that's that's the impression I got. <laughs> <laughs> when you think of the queen being very big somehow i don't know in your head mm. she when was... when was this what year was it uh, this would have been, I guess, um, 2008 or something, something like that. Um, mm. So about 15 years ago, uh, I, I guess. Mm. Um, but she was, you know, she was walking completely without a cane or anything and, you know, full of full of beans and so on. Um, but the interesting thing there was that um, I spotted somebody who had met on a previous networking event uh, who was also had also been invited to uh, the garden party and that was Linda Bennett. Now, yeah. Linda Bennett was mm. the entrepreneur who set up LK Bennett, the chain of shoe stores. And uh, I believe you know something about that, Jay. Having uh, spent <laughs> some time working working there as a Saturday <laughs> shop assistant. I do believe it, it taught you didn't want to do retail. Is that right? Something it, like that. it definitely it definitely <laughs> taught me. I mean, there were two there were two places I worked at the same time, both of which were retail, and they both gave me some strong indications that retail isn't my calling <laughs> so so that was a good life lesson <laughs> but uh, yeah that's right I, I, but all I'd say just you know because it's a uh, a thing that not many people have a chance to do uh, Linda who I got to know quite well actually because I, I first met her I mean this is jumping forward in life or backwards depending on how you look at it um she uh 
I was again with this Helen Taylor Thompson had been nominated for an award as Social Entrepreneur of the Year uh, for her work with charities, and um, that was run by Ernst and Young, and they had an annual cer- ceremony for entrepreneurs where they they handed out these dished out all these awards. And again, Helen rang me up and asked me if I'd like to go. I thought, why not? I was in a swanky London hotel. And uh, we, we went and I was absolutely... It was like the Oscars. It was extraordinary. It was sort of all <laughs> tables of 10, all very, very fancy. And um, they would, in each category, they would announce um, that here are, the, here are the nominees and then the envelope would be open and here's the winner. And I was sitting at this table um, with Helen and 10 other people randomly chosen. And unbeknown to me, I was sitting next to Linda, who I didn't know. And we got talking and I, she said, oh, I'm, um, I'm a shoe designer. And I just love going out to um, places where there's lots of material and rummaging through the boxes and finding colours and, you know, and fabrics and, and shapes that I can then make beautiful shoes out of. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I'd absolutely know. Anyway, it came to the, um, to the category of entrepreneur of the year and the the drums rolled and the envelope was opened and it was Linda Bennett and I didn't know that was her name at this stage but the spotlight then <laughs> fell came straight on, on right next to me and off off she went and collected her award and she came back and I said oh I didn't I had no idea you were a nominee or that she said well I certainly didn't expect to win and then it went on to the entrepreneur the winner of winners the the overall of over all the categories and there was a drum roll and the envelope was opened and then it's linda bennett and Here comes the, the spotlight uh, the spotlight and off she went so so helen of course who didn't win her awards she she was a runner-up um the minute realized she realized that linda was a successful businesswoman was right now how can we use how can we get linda involved in the charity and linda was mm. was involved for a number of years actually um, supporting the work we were doing, which is which we'll which we'll talk about another time, but um, so that 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 was who I met at for a second time at the uh, Buckingham Pal- Palace oh. Garden Palace part blah, blah, blah. Buckingham <laughs> Buckingham <laughs> Buckingham Party Garden Palace something like that anyway um, the Buckingham Garden Palace Party <laughs> Palace Tea Buckingham Party and uh, and that kind of I mean it's one of those random things where you know this is a sort of thing that's been a feature really is that capitalize on opportunities that arrive because there she was and we had a chat and that sort of reinforces a friendship in that she was then a bit more willing to help with things when it came she was she was one of the busiest people in the world you know you could never get hold of her but if she felt there was a a, a cause um that, that warranted her help she she would help out and so that's that's really what we used to do all the time was see what people could offer and then ask them if they could help with it and then that was a good case in point for a second there I thought you were talking about the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I was I was too busy talking to Linda to bother with the Queen. I was like, Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, so just in finishing, I thought it would be interesting to have your in- reflections on the whole kind of um, funeral, um, all the p- razzmatazz that's been going on the last few weeks with the, with the death of the Queen. Because, I mean, it's, it's a very different perspective now. Um, and I don't know what you think about it all. I don't know, really. I mean, I think that you can't deny that she was the longest-serving kind of queen, and it it does feel it it does feel sort of strange that for all of our life and for all of your life, it's always been the same person, and and then now it's changed. But but I don't know. At the same time, I think it feels extraordinary 
and not in a good way to be doing all of this when we literally have a cost of living crisis happening mm-hmm. and like uh, many many things that seem to be going quite a lot wrong with the world and to kind of I don't know to sort of pause everything to to kind of spend lots of money on such a big extravagance it feels very it throws weird. it into sharp relief doesn't it the whole the huge expense of the whole monarchy and and everything totally. that they do and how much because it's kind of everybody's been watching what's been obviously this has been a slightly more a bigger event but like Steve mm. was saying with Buckingham Palace and her coming out for everywhere they go everywhere everything they do costs so much money because it's 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 that peak of richness I suppose in a way yeah. it's like yes. you, couldn't, you couldn't be more at the top of the tier and it just throw, yeah like I say it just throws it to sharp relief seeing the situation most of the country is in and then seeing that and seeing these people and how they live and thinking what why is it this way yeah and whether it will change because it feels like in some ways it hasn't changed because it had been the same for so long mm. and now that there is a change I wonder it will be interesting to see kind of what 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 that means because I can't imagine it carries on in the same way because we're just we're not the same world no. as we were when the queen came like to the throne I sort of feel that I sort of feel the real crunch will come with the next change which won't be so far off because Charles mm. you know he's not a young man um in the way that the queen was when she and and you know definitely the the next generation have got much more of a common touch um but I mean what I felt about it is it's a huge amount of nonsense but it's, it's rather it's incredibly good it's incredibly sort of I don't know. It's, it's spectacular. A, it's a spectacular sure. nonsense. Like, that's true. Yes. It's um, the the kind of amount of I I was trying to work out like when they'd rehearsed it all because there's no you know, know that must be rehearsed within an inch of its life and it's so theatrical, like, isn't it? So theatrical, yeah. And like there was some beautiful singing. Um, oh, and the I trumpets! Think lots... I, 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 that's the thing that brought tears to my eyes. Was the trumpet voluntary at the end? I couldn't because they're all sort of you know they're not proper trumpets. They're ones that's all yeah, created. They're and doing it was it all so precise, mm. so precise. Mm. Was... And lots of people were talking about the kind of the the because it was obviously televised and and how kind of that must have been a huge operation in terms yeah. of navigating like which shots you're choosing and sort yeah. of how many cameras and you you couldn't. You didn't feel that at all, but I don't well, know. The, I, and the I, other thing is the audio, you know, because, I mean, a lot of it was m- moving audio, and yet it was almost flawless as far as I could work out. You, you could, nothing was too quiet, nothing was too loud. It was really amazing mm. production. Mm. But, and, but also I wonder as well, in, in a world where, like, you know, there's lots of spectacular things in TV shows and in films, and, yeah. you know, you look at The Crown where they sort yeah. of, um, they show the funeral of... Um, George the Sixth. Am I saying that? Is that right? I'm never any good with monarchy, but probably. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> um, anyway, and you sort of go. I wonder if. I wonder if that's maybe also why. Like it. It. I don't know. It just. It doesn't. It just seems like. Oh. Okay. That's. That's the sort of thing. Rather than. I. I couldn't feel the momentousness of the event somehow, and I no. wonder if it's because. Last time it happened, nothing happens like that. Yeah. Whereas There's I don't a lot know. More yeah. We've been desensitized. Yeah. To- but I th- and I think you know that as the generations, as we sort of go through generations, we're all slightly less accepting of this nonsense of of power and control without any sort of legitimacy really. And and 
that that will change and has to change because we know we know so much more now we've got access to information and so on but but there is something about the connect connectivity of the of the monarchy that 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 brought a huge number of people to the same place in the last few weeks and and that is that itself is good it's probably too high a cost and um yeah I, I, that's I think that's something that I've had in my brain but didn't really know how to say is that thing of being like it's something that unifies I mean I'm just going to repeat exactly what you've said basically <laughs> I'm saying, I, I completely agree it's something that unifies the whole country however you feel about it one way or another it was something that's universal yeah. in a way yeah um and there's nothing and, like and, it and, and no there's nothing like it if 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 that's and I'm I'm agreeing in that I don't think it's necessarily the best way of having something like that. But what is there um, that does that other than the monarchy? Don't know. Well, we can probably just all agree that it's a nonsense, but a bit of fun at the same time. <laughs> it's um, expensive nonsense. And that is all I have for you today, friends. Marvellous. Thank you ever Excellent. so much. Yeah, some Yet interesting stories. Smashing one. I know, I don't remember the perfume shop story, so I was glad to hear oh. that. As a, as a warrior, it's stuck in my brain quite well. <laughs> Speaking um, as a warrior. You, you might want to edit this out, but I just want to know, because it came up this week. Um, when we were walking along the canal past the school when you were younger, uh, did, we, did we name something Shadrach, Shadrach Meshach, yeah, and Tebebi? It was, was the little it was hoops the, that you... And the direction that they were in. <laughs> yeah. I said it, I said to mum it was, and as I said it, I thought... Really? I don't <laughs> yeah, yeah if was... they were if they were like pointing one way it was Shadrach, another way Mesach and the other way to bed we go. <laughs> yeah. It was, I know that's not the real name, by the way. The, it's the hoops that the canal boats tie up to and if you if they were one way you could kick them. It was like Yeah. The little this hoop is... was inside a little hoop that was yeah. st- stuck to the ground and you could kick it and it would hit the other side. So I think it was if it was touching the near side it was one. You kick it and it hit the other side. It was the other. Or you flip it over and it was the this, third one. This, this was my memory, but I couldn't really be sure of mm. it. And I, wanted to, I wanted to double check it. It's very, very I wonder funny. how many times you did that because that feels absolutely ingrained in my brain. She must have done it quite yeah. a few times. I, I know. Just wild. And then there was the um, little rhyme that made your bike jump up onto its back, back <laughs> wheel. Um, um, oh, I have trouble remembering that. That was like... Two swans, was it that one? Three ducks swimming along two, the canal, hay. Yeah, hey. two said, swans, three duck, ducks swimming, swimming along, along the canal, canal hay. <laughs> and if you said that, then your bike, because you, you were walking along with your bike in, walking your bike along next to us, and if we said that right, then you would flip it up onto its back wheel, so it was like doing a wheelie. I didn't flip it up. It flipped up on its own. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Those were the days, fun. eh? Silly Great fun. Well, thanks for another episode, everybody. Yep. And we will see you on the next month. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's definitely goodbye from me. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye.